Good morning. How's everybody doing? Mmm. Sounds real good. My name's Carl. I'm one of the ministers here at the Parkway Church. I'm glad you guys are with us. I'm eager to look at this text together. Uh, and I thought uh, that we should start where, where any good sermon would start, and that's with pizza. Pizza is amazing. Pizza is delicious. Pizza is the perfect food. Pizza has all the food groups. Don't argue with me about that. I think everybody likes pizza. Does anybody not like pizza in here? Okay, a couple hands, a couple hands. Those of you that just raised your hands, you do not get to participate in the next question. This is a debate that's long been raging in the pizza community. Just my own personal edification, I wanna know. Who's okay with pineapple on pizza? Okay, hands down. Oh, hey, hey, slow down. Slow down. Slow down, pineapple people. Who thinks pineapple is acceptable? Who's against it? For it. Okay, I was trying to figure out which one of y'all are going to be my friends. Okay. Which one did you vote for, Carl? Hmm. You'll never know. Okay. Pizza is something that's been a part of my life for a long time. Mainly because I like to eat it, right? I cannot remember the first time I ate pizza, but I wish I did, because I feel like it was probably an amazing day. My very first job was working in a pizza place. At age 15, I started washing dishes at a place called Little Caesar's Pizza. You might have heard of it. And by the time I was 20, I was the general manager of the Little Caesar's where I worked. Now, that either means that I was super good at my job and deserving of promotion, or that the guy in front of me got fired unexpectedly and I was the closest thing to a viable candidate. I will let you decide which one of those it was. Maybe it's both. But the reason I even applied to work there in the first place, because I thought it'd be a fun place to work. Why did I think it'd be a fun place to work? Because their commercials were hilarious, okay? In the 80s and 90s, Little Caesars had this gimmick. They had this thing, buy one, get one free, right? You could not get one pizza at Little Caesars. If you ordered one pizza, you got a second pizza for free. And that was the way it worked. They even packaged them in twos. It was this weird long cardboard thing with two pizzas on it and this weird paper bag that slid down over the whole thing and you had to carry this weird thing home. Well, there's one ad in particular that always stuck with me and at age 13, which is when it came out, I thought it was the funniest ad that had ever been made. You may or may not agree. The story is this. You've got a scout leader who goes into Little Caesars with his scouts. And he's picking up the pizzas, and he picks up the weird, awkward, long, double pizza situation. And he goes, all right, well, I owe you for two pizzas. And then one of his scouts go, oh, no, sir, when you order pizza at Little Caesars, you buy one pizza, you get another one for free. And the scout leader, seeing this like opportunity to teach his boys integrity, says, well, then we'll pay for two. And the kid behind the counter goes, well, sir, then you'll get four. <laughs> and then he goes, well, then we'll pay for four. And they go, well, sir, then you'll get eight. And then they cut away, and they're like, fresh toppings, Little Caesars, that's awesome. And then they cut back, and he's reaching into his wallet. Well, then we'll pay for 512. And the kid goes, well, then you'll get 1,024. And then that's the end of the commercial. <laughs> At age 13, I was crying, because that was so funny. Because I understood the math, like I was, I was with it, with a doubling, and I was like, man, I am really smart. Now, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is, what's going on in that ad apart from amazing silliness, is that the scout leader sees this opportunity 
to give up the right that he has in order to teach somebody something good, in order to help someone else. So he says to himself, I have the right to pay for this one pizza and take these two home, but I think it'll be better if I give up that right to teach these boys how to be men of integrity. Now, maybe he didn't, did or didn't get that right, but that's what he's trying to do. And in a similar way, Paul is dealing with that same issue here in our text today. He is wanting to lay down some rights for the good of others. And I think he probably does get it right. But uh, let's pray and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We're grateful just for the opportunity that we have to, to gather together uh, in the name of Christ and to worship uh, and to celebrate who you are and what you've done. And so as we study this little piece of your word, we pray that you'll be near. We pray that your spirit will encourage us, that you will illuminate the truth of this word to our hearts, that we might better understand you and therefore better know you, better love you, and better worship you. And so we thank you that you are a good God, that you give good gifts to your children. We can trust you with your word. And so as we study it this morning, we pray you'll bless us, encourage us, uh, and remind us of your faithfulness to us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, let's jump into it. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So what's he talking about in this first sentence? I have not made any use of any of these rights. What rights is he talking about? He's talking about the rights that he just finished explaining in the first half of chapter nine. So last week, Jeff walked us through verses one through 14 of chapter nine, where he kind of lays out kind of an airtight case to the Testament that he has the right to ask the Corinthian church to pay him. He has the right to tell the Corinthian church, you need to provide for me. I am here preaching the word to you. You should provide for me a place to live, clothes on my back, food to eat. You should be taking care of me because I'm taking care of you. That's the way it works. And he lays out all of this biblical evidence for why that's true. And he tells us in a couple of times in those opening verses, and he tells us again here in verse 15, that he's wanting to lay that right down. He's not making use of it. So I'm not making use of those rights. It's very clear. We can all agree. I have the right to ask you to take care of me, but I'm not going to. Okay? So he's talking about these things. He's laying down this kind of airtight case. He's talking about this right that he has for a particular reason, but we're going to get to the context and the kind of why behind that as we move along. Let's keep going in verse 15, though. He says, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So he's doing what Paul typically does, which is he tells people something, and then he's like, I know what you're going to say. Let me just go ahead and fix that for you and sort out that objection, because he knows what they're thinking is, ah, I know what you're up to, Paul. You're giving us the old, you know, a guy that preaches totally deserves to get paid. And they're like, oh, oh, then let us pay you. <gasps> no, I couldn't. Oh, we insist. All right, I'll take it. Thanks. <laughs> Right? He's saying, I'm not doing that. He's saying, I'm not here trying to earn a living off of you. He's saying, I am not writing these things. I did not just tell you why it's absolutely okay for me to ask for this. I did not do that in order to get you to pay me. I'm doing something else. Right? He's not writing these things to convince the Corinthian church to support him. And it's important for us to see a couple of things that I think the Corinthian church would have seen clearly that are implicit but might not be something we would notice today. Number one, I want us to notice this. What Paul is doing is he is distinguishing himself from the other speakers of the day. 
So we, we, we saw and heard a lot about this in the early chapters uh, of 1 Corinthians, where there's a, there's a really big emphasis and value placed on public speaking. People that were good orators were well-loved and respected, and people tried to like follow them, be like, that's my guy. That guy, when he speaks, I listen. That's my dude. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul, and all these kinds of things. And very often, these kind of secular speakers, when they would get up and speak, although those names that I just listed aren't the secular speakers, but that was also happening. When these guys would speak, you could be certain somebody was footing the bill. Somebody was giving that guy a place to live. Somebody was giving that guy food. Somebody was giving that guy what he needed to buy clothing and these kinds of things. There was almost always a wealthy benefactor that would support these speakers. And Paul is trying to say, that's not what I'm doing. Because when that happens, whatever the content is, Whenever money changes hands, you follow the money backwards and you'll find the power, right? We know that to be true. And so whatever a guy is speaking, if he's got a wealthy benefactor, he's probably saying what that guy wants him to say. In a similar way, like if you were to throw a big party, birthday party for your friend, and you're, doing, you're just doing it up, you wanna show your friend how awesome you are, and you're like, I'm gonna hire a live band to play in my backyard. And you hire the band, what songs is that band gonna play? The ones you want them to play. You'd be like, I want Black Crows, I want Stone Temple Pilots, I want, and you're like, like we don't even play that stuff. <laughs> Figure it out, bro, I'm paying you. <laughs> but, but, but we're a Journey cover band, don't care. <laughs> play what I asked you to play. So whatever they're playing, you can be sure they're playing the stuff that the guy with the money wanted them to play. In a similar way, whenever people would speak publicly, you could be pretty sure that they were saying whatever pleased the person that paid them. And Paul's saying, nope, I'm not gonna play that game. I do not want you to be in a position to question whether or not what I'm telling you is something that's genuinely for your good, that's genuinely from the Lord, but instead is just something that my wealthy benefactor wants me to, wants me to say, okay? So he's kind of separating himself from the other speakers in that way. That's the first thing. The second thing I want us to see is that Paul is making a personal example of himself regarding something he just finished talking to them about. So in chapter 8, Paul made a big deal about the, um, the meat sacrificed to idols. You remember this? Right, so the meat sacrificed to idols was a big deal. And Paul said, hey, you're right. You guys do have the freedom to eat that meat. Okay? But you can, and perhaps should, lay down that right for the good of your brothers. And he's, doing, he's saying that. There, here's this right that you have that you might ought to think about laying down for the good of your weaker brother. Paul's now saying, okay, now I told you about that. Now I'm gonna give you an example in my own life. Now I'm gonna help you to see what I'm talking about by showing you a place in my life where I have rights and I'm going to lay them down for the good of the brothers, for the good of other people. So then he goes on in verse 15 to say, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. That's pretty strong language, for I would rather die than for anybody to take away my ground for boasting. What does he mean by this? Why is he talking in this way? Well, clearly it's kind of emotive. Clearly it's kind of serious. It's very, you know, I would rather die than have this happen. But grammatically, we're missing something. The translators have done a good job of helping us to see the meaning of this sentence in a way that works in English. But what's actually happening is if you would imagine Paul dictating this letter and somebody else is writing it down, Paul is literally interrupting himself while he talks. Uh, imagine this. Imagine you're a parent and you've got a child who's exasperating you. That doesn't happen, I know, but imagine it. <laughs> and you're talking to your kid and you're like, listen, kiddo, when you do this, 
you are disobeying me, you are disobeying God, and it happens over and over, and I'm really frustrated with you, and this is just, it's just, it's just, go to your room, right? You kind of interrupt yourself, and you make this new statement. That's kind of what Paul's doing. Paul's kind of saying, I would rather die than to, than to, nobody's going to take from me my ground for boasting. That's kind of what Paul's doing. So this is a really, really strong emotive thing that he's saying. He feels really strongly about this. That's what's being indicated is that Paul is really serious about this idea of not losing his ability to boast. It's very important to him. And why is that? Why is it so important for Paul to boast in whatever it is he's boasting in? And he gives us a hint. He gives us a hint about what he's talking about back in verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12 says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's saying that somehow his boast is connected to preaching the gospel free of charge, and that if he were to make use of that right, then it would be this obstacle. If he were to make use of this right that he has, to tell the Corinthians to to compensate him, then that would somehow be an obstacle. How would that be an obstacle? That doesn't seem to be that big of a deal to us. That's not a problem for us here. There isn't anybody in this room that thinks, you know, I've really been thinking about the gospel, but you guys pay Jeff, and you pay Tim, and you pay Zach, and so I don't know, I don't know, I can't get on board because you guys are getting paid. Nobody's wrestling with that. Because Parkway is made up of members who already understand, for the most part, what Paul just finished describing in the first half of the, half of the chapter. They already understand that the laborer deserves his wages, that you shouldn't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. These ideas are things that we don't misunderstand very, very much here at Parkway, which is great. But that's not the context Paul's dealing with. Paul is dealing with new believers. Paul is dealing with preaching to the Gentiles that are pagan, and have never heard of Christ, don't understand God's word, don't understand the expectations of God, don't understand the history of Israel. They don't know all that stuff. They just hear the gospel, and then they're being saved, and they don't have any more context yet. They haven't yet matured. They haven't yet learned. And so it would indeed be an obstacle for these new believers for Paul to say, okay, cool, you guys, listen. I told you what's up. You're believing in Jesus. That's awesome. Now you're part of this church. Also, you can give me some money. That would be tough. That would be difficult. That would create in the minds of a lot of these new believers, did you tell me all that because you were hoping to get my money? Or did you tell me that because you actually think this is good for me? I'm confused. So it can become an obstacle, and that's kind of what Paul is dealing with. That's what he's talking about. So it does indeed shed a little light on what's going on, because we are 2,000 years down the road. Our context is different than his. So for us to understand what he's dealing with is valuable for us, but we haven't really even gotten yet to Paul's main point. He has not yet fully explained the issue that we're dealing with. Somehow, he's saying that if he were to accept payment, he would lose his ability to boast. Well, we know from verse 15 that it's clearly important to him. He feels strongly about it, but we still don't know exactly what he's boasting in. So instead of asking them to pay him, instead, Paul makes tents. He's a tent maker. He makes tents at night to support himself so that he can preach the gospel during the day for free. But what exactly is it that he wants to boast in? What is it he's excited about boasting and doesn't want to give up? Let's keep going. Verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
So I think it's helpful for us to stop for a second and just talk about the word boasting, because we, in our context today, we think of the word boasting as being associated with something negative, maybe even sinful. We think of it as boasting as being prideful, as being arrogant. That's what we think of when we think of that word. That's not how Paul's using that word. That's not what Paul means by this. Paul is saying that he, that he rejoices in the Lord, that he glories in the Lord. There are other translations of the Bible that would use the word glorying rather than boasting. But that's the idea is that he's saying, I am being used by God for the ministry of the gospel and I find great joy in it, and I find great joy in this, this thing that I get to participate in, this thing that I get to contribute, this thing that I get to do, I find great joy in it, and I glory in it, and I boast in what God is doing with me in his ministry. So he says, he's not being prideful, but he's being glorying, he's not trying to be arrogant, that's not what we're dealing with, but what is it that he's boasting in? Well. Here in the beginning of verse 16, he tells us what is not. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. So is he boasting in his preaching? Nope. And why not? Why, why wouldn't he boast in his preaching? That's the most valuable thing he's doing is preaching the word. Why would that not be the thing that he's boasting in? Well, he answers that question immediately following. For necessity is laid upon me. So Paul is saying, this is necessary for me. I didn't get to pick this. I didn't get to choose to be the preacher who brings the gospel. This was put upon me. Necessity is laid upon me. In a similar way to some of the Old Testament prophets, God is compelling Paul to do what he does. Paul did not wake up one morning and decide, you know what I'm going to do? I think I'm going to preach the gospel. That's not the way it went. Paul talks about how he was set apart for this purpose even before he was born. He talks about this in Galatians chapter 1, the first half of verse 15. He says, but when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace, and he goes on to finish his thought, but he's saying, this job of mine was picked by God even before I was born. This was something that's been put upon me from the foundations of the world because God chose this for me. I didn't choose this for myself. It's like Jeremiah. Jeremiah dealt with a similar situation and spoke of that situation similarly as well. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jeremiah says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so Paul, Paul is kind of alluding to this idea, this idea that God put this on me. I didn't pick it. This is something God has pushed me into because that is his will. He's saying, I didn't pick this. I didn't choose this. I was just on this road, walking toward Damascus, looking for some sweet Christians to persecute. And Jesus showed up and said, you're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And I said, I guess I'm preaching the gentle, to the Gentiles. Right? He's saying, that's what this is about. It's not that I picked this, because I am compelled. Necessity has been laid upon me. So if he does preach, then he's got nothing to boast in, because God is compelling it and commanding it. If he doesn't preach, then he's saying... It's not going to go well for me, right? He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is like this divine judgment. He's saying, if I choose to not preach, if I choose to not do the thing that Jesus made me do when he met me on the road to Damascus, it's not going to go well for me. And again, Jeremiah is a good example for us to see what that looks like. Jeremiah had a similar situation where, where God said, Jeremiah, you're going to be my prophet. Go and tell all the nations what I tell you. Oh, also, they're not going to listen to you at all. And they're going to make fun of you. And you're going to be really frustrated. Go on. And Jeremiah's like, well, that sounds awesome. 
And so he goes and he does it and he's faithful and it's awful. They make fun of him, they mock him, they deride him. It wears him out, he gets really frustrated and he says to himself, you know what? Nah, I'm good, I'm done, I quit. I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm not gonna say your name to anybody anymore. I'm super done. And then it gets worse for him. He cannot shake this fire in him to do what God has compelled him to do. He essentially says, it was worse for me when I stopped, and so I got back to it because it doesn't matter if I want to, God is compelling me. That's kind of what Paul is talking about. I am compelled, I have had this necessity laid upon me, and woe to me if I don't do it. And the good thing is that this sets Paul free. It sets him free to preach and not do it for the praise of others. He's doing it because God has asked him to do this. He's being faithful to the commands of the Lord. And it sets him free from fearing the criticism of others, which he certainly gets plenty of. And he talks about this back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says, But with me is it a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I should do what God's telling me to do. So he doesn't expect and he doesn't desire any reward. And he's saying, I don't have anything to boast in because I did not choose this. This is something God put on me. And then in verse 17, he's going to go on to elaborate a little more about whether or not this is actually up to him. Verse 17, for uh, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. So what does he mean? What exactly is he saying here? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Think of... Think of guys in the army, Vietnam War. One guy goes down to the war office and says, I wanna sign up, give me a gun, give me a uniform, put me in training, send me over there, I wanna fight for my country. Another guy is sitting with his beatnik beard reading Hemingway and he gets a postcard that says, guess what? You're in the army, show up at this day, this time, at this place, because you're gonna go fight. Both of those guys go to training, both of those guys go to fight, both of those guys do their duty, both of them are faithful to do all that's commanded of them while they're over there, and they both come home. One of them has a little bit something more to, to boast in. One of them has something a, little, something a little more to be excited about. That he said, I wanna do this. I've not been compelled, I choose to do this. Or like your kids, think about your kids cleaning their room, right? If you tell a kid to clean their room and then they clean their room, great. They've been obedient, that's excellent. If they wake up on their own at 5 a.m. and totally reorganize their closet and clean their room and you get up to come in there and wake them up for breakfast and they're like. <laughs> right, that kid has a little more something to boast in. They've both done the same thing. They both did the thing you wanted them to do and the thing that is good and right for them to do. But one of them said, I choose this. I choose to do this. Now, that's what Paul is dealing with. He's trying to help us to see what's going on. It's important for us to notice that Paul is not commenting on his desire. He's not saying, well, I didn't wanna. He's just saying, I didn't get to pick it. It was picked for me. He's happy to do it. He, it's his joy to preach. He's not saying that this has been put on me and it's, I'm doing this begrudgingly. He's just saying, I did not get to pick, all right? Is he the soldier that volunteered or is he the one that was drafted? He was the one who was drafted. He's not doing God a favor. He doesn't even get to pick the work that he does. God's in charge, and he's the one who assigns the work. So Paul is therefore entitled to no thanks and no reward. It's just his job, right? You don't get praise for doing your job. If I'm managing a Little Caesar's pizza, which I did, by the way, 
and I tell some kid to make a couple pepperoni pizzas and throw them in the oven, and then he does it, am I gonna be like, oh my goodness, you made two pepperoni pizzas and threw them in the oven. Everybody come over here and look at this. Way to go, Billy. No, I'm just gonna be like, good job, you did your job. That's what you do, right? If Jeff makes me do his laundry, you didn't think that was coming back, did you? And I do all of his shirts with like extra starch and things like this, right? He just told me to do it, so I did it, which is false. I never did his laundry. <laughs> think about Moses. Think about Jonah, right? Moses takes the message of God to Pharaoh. Jonah takes the message of God to Nineveh. Neither of those guys are praised for having done that. Then they both tried to get out of it. Moses is like, no, I don't speak so good. And God's like, do it. And the other guy's like, did you say, did you say Tarshish? I think you said Tarshish. And he goes somewhere else. But they both end up doing what God told them, told them to do. They did it begrudgingly, but they were faithful to do it. But they don't deserve praise. They did what God told them to do. Paul's just doing the job that was assigned to him. He's preaching the gospel. He is passing on to his listeners what God has said. And that's the job. And just a quick aside, that should be the job of anybody who stands before the gathered assembly. That should be the way that we judge whether or not somebody that stands up here and preaches is doing it right. Did they tell you what God said? That's the way we judge sermons. Not how entertaining the person is, not how funny they are, not how good they made you feel or not. But did they correctly tell you what God has said? The efficacy of preaching is not in the preacher, but in the word of God itself. But enough of that. Paul is not choosing this. He is compelled. This necessity has been placed upon him. So he's now done kind of a thorough job of telling us what his boasting is not. But what is it? What is Paul boasting in? What is he joyful about? What is it that, that he would rather die than to give up? Verse 18. What then is my reward? Here it is. That in preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So what is Paul's reward? What is Paul's joy? What is he boastful about? What is it that he would rather die than to give up? It's not the ministry. Jesus gave him that. It's not the preaching. He's been compelled to do that. It's not even the message itself. That's the message of God that he's passing along. He boasts in this laying down of his freedom. He's boasting in giving up his rights. Paul is required to preach, and he has the right to compensation, as he's clearly demonstrated. So he's kind of going the extra mile here. He, by preaching free of charge, that is what he does voluntarily. That is where Paul says, I choose this. I choose this for the good of my listeners. I've been compelled to preach, and I do it willingly and joyfully. I've been given a message that's not mine, it's mine to deliver. But I do choose this. I choose to lay down my right to ask you to compensate me. I lay down that right for your good. So he's saying my reward is to receive no reward. My ultimate freedom is to not make use of my freedom in order to love others and to remove any hindrance to the gospel. Paul's trying to point out to the Corinthians that it is not about you and your rights. Right? It's about you. It's not about you being able to eat that meat or not. Something more important is happening here. 
loving others, sharing the gospel, the kingdom's growth is more important than your personal freedoms. So how does this apply to us here in McKinney, Texas in 2021? Well, our current culture feeds this issue pretty well. We do have a me-centeredness and not an others-centeredness in our culture. It surrounds us everywhere. Personal liberty, personal freedom are issues that get focused on a great deal in our current climate. Right? And this mindset permeates every aspect of our lives. Social media is a great example right, of the me-centeredness of our culture. What is almost every Facebook post, Twitter tweet, and TikTok talk? I don't know what they call it. What do you call those? What, is, what are those all about? About me. What I'm doing, where I'm going, who I'm with, what I'm eating, the new dance that I learned. <laughs> right? Advertisements on TV, the internet, your phone, they're all aimed at this kind of me-centeredness. Ads for everything from toothpaste to potato chips to pharmaceuticals talk to you all day about what you deserve, about what you're entitled to, about what you should get for yourself so that you can be happier and healthier and have this fulfilled life and find all the joy you've ever wanted because of this toothbrush that makes your teeth whiter. Even our faith has had some level of impact in this area. We have this me-centeredness. Sometimes following Christ becomes about me. It becomes about my salvation, my freedoms, my rights, my personal relationship with Jesus, and so on. Even when we take communion, this comes in sometimes. When we take communion together, there's ordinance that's meant to be the body of Christ together, celebrating a meal and remembering who Christ is and what he's done. We tend to kind of draw inward and think about me. I got my wine, I got my bread, it's just me and Jesus. Now, all this is not meant to say that thinking of yourself is wrong. It isn't. You need to think about yourself. You need to think of how you're managing your finances. You need to think about where you're doing with your future how you're going to provide for your family, what kind of steps you can take to keep them safe, how you're planning for the future. These things are generally good and right and faithful. And there is indeed a sense in which your personal relationship with Christ is valuable and to be thought about. But we oftentimes forget that our personal relationship with Christ is not private. It isn't a private relationship with Christ that you have. It's a community one. It's a communal relationship with Christ that we share together. We are meant to be a part of a body. So do you have the freedom as a Christian to drink alcohol? Of course, absolutely. You can enjoy a glass of wine, have a beer. These things are great and good. Wine was made to make men's hearts glad, the scriptures say. But then do you take that right and extend it to when you invite someone over who struggles with drunkenness, you crack open a bottle of wine or do you lay down that right? This, this is the kinds of things that Paul is trying to help us see. That there is a sense in which we are to put others first because that's what we've been commanded. But it's really easy to put ourselves first. Once my bank account is full, once my savings account looks a certain way, once my retirement account looks good, once I've got the house I'm looking for, once my kids are a certain age, once I've got the cars that I've been hoping to get, once all my vacation planning has been done and saved up for, then I'll think about others. Then I will give to the church. Then I will love and serve others ahead of myself. That can be the way we think. 
Paul's telling the Corinthians that their personal freedom, their personal autonomy, their personal rights, those things are good, but there's something better. It's better to love others. It is better that the gospel goes out unimpeded and unhindered by your rights. But we also have to be careful that we don't swing the pendulum the other way. As usual, when we try to open the front door to faithfulness and understanding, legalism is sneaking in behind. Just because Paul is laying down his rights here in order to reach the lost does not mean that we should interpret that, that the very best way for every preacher to live is to lay down that right, and we should never compensate anybody who preaches. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul is going to take money from churches, and then he's going to go on to instruct those churches, do not, do not forsake this command to take care of those who preach and teach. So Paul isn't, isn't making some universal new rule. He's just trying to get the Corinthians to see that loving others might be too low on your priority scale. Go back to the meat sacrifice to idols thing. Paul isn't telling them that they can't enjoy that freedom to eat the meat. They can. He's saying that as they enjoy that right and freedom, they need to be cautious. That they don't forget their responsibility to love others. Which means that they shouldn't pressure their weaker brother to eat the meat in violation of their conscience. Or worse yet, try to get that weaker brother to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols in the actual temple and then cause them to really sin. Similarly, we as Christians have that freedom to drink that alcohol and to abstain when we have, when we have somebody who's wrestling. So this is not a passage that's giving some new rule, some new command. It's not about figuring out what all your rights are and then just lay them all down all the time. That's legalism. That's saying, what could possibly happen? So let me just get as far away from the possibility as possible. There is somebody out there who might get drunk. There is somebody out there who might struggle with lust. Therefore, we will never, ever, ever have any alcohol ever. We will never dance. We will never watch rated R movies. We'll get away from all those things. That's legalism. And so Paul wants the church in Corinth, and he wants Parkway to understand we do have a great many freedoms as Christians. And that we should gladly enjoy them. But he also wants us to see that loving others for the sake of the advancement of the gospel is something better, something greater. When Jesus answers the Pharisee who asks him about the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And he goes on and says, the second is like it. Love yourself and enjoy your freedoms. No. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is telling us we might love ourselves a little too much. The freedoms that we have in Christ are good, but there is something better. It should be our joy, it should be our glory, it should be our boast to be willing on occasion to lay down those freedoms for the love of others and for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We are grateful that that your love is unchanging, that your priorities don't differ. You don't sway to and fro and back and forth like we do. You don't wrestle with what to do because you are unchanging. You are perfect. You are sovereign. You are loving. You are good. These things are consistently and constantly true about you. And so we're thankful for that. But it's not true of us. We ebb and flow, we bend 
and we change. And it's so easy for us to put ourselves first. It's so easy for us to think of others once we feel comfortable. It's so easy for us to forget what your commands are, that we are to love you and to love others. Now that can be, that's the, the summary of your commands to us. And so we pray, we pray that you'll help us. We pray that you'll strengthen our hearts, so you'll give us wisdom to see what we do not see. Give us conviction where we have put ourselves first, where we've been unwilling to love others, where we've been unwilling to lay down our rights on the occasions that are fitting, in the contexts that are helpful and loving to others. And that you'd protect us from that legalism that wants us to just create new rules so we can just follow them and check them off and feel good about ourselves. We want to honor you. We want to love you. We want to obey you. But it's easy to say. It's hard to do. So we ask for you to be near. Help us to be faithful. Help us to believe you and your word, to trust you. We're thankful that you've given us your son. We're thankful that you've given us your spirit that illuminates the truth of your word to our hearts that we might know the truth about your son and believe upon him, that our hope might remain steadfast in Christ because that's where our identity lies. It doesn't align our ability to, to measure up, to do good enough because he's already done good enough. So we pray that you'll help us, help us to embrace this truth that Christ has accomplished all. He's paid it all. That we don't have to measure up. We don't have to accomplish for you because he's accomplished all for us. So help us to believe that. Help us to trust in what you've told us about your son. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.